You're listening to Muscles to the Masses, the podcast. We're covering muscles, of course, all kinds of movement, recovery, and fitness. I'm your host, Julie Reed. I'll bring information you can trust from maybe new-to-you sources. Today, I'm chatting with Felicia Ankton-Johnson. Felicia was a D1 track athlete at the University of Washington, where she earned two All-American awards as a hurdler. Her collegiate career opened the door to run professionally for Brooks Running. She used her experience as an athlete to coach at the high school, college, and elite level. Felicia turned her passion to create her company, Philippe Performance, where she develops athletes in all sports to increase their speed, multi-directional movement, footwork, and mentality. On this episode, we get quickly, get it, into what it was like for Felicia as an athlete at the collegiate level and how that changed when she turned pro, her tips on being mentally ready for competition, what it means to sprint well, and how she's changing the game for athletes who have to be fast for their sport. Oh, and when you hear her favorite food, you'll be craving it for days. Stay tuned. Felicia, thank you so much for being here. Uh, why don't you tell us how you got started in track? Oh, get started in track. I have to give credit to my dad and my brothers. I am the youngest of three. I have two older brothers that I always try to keep up with. But in the fifth grade, I had a track meet. And it was one of those like all comers for all the elementary schools. And I beat everybody and all the different events I ran. And my dad was like, Felicia, you should run track like that's in your blood and it just was a fun little like PE kind of class I'm like no I'm good so I was a dancer I did ballet and tap dance for a majority of like since I was five all the way through 17 and then high school hit and my dad was like okay it's time you gotta go out for track you gotta do some kind of sport I think they were really tired of going to my recitals. I mean, eight hours, my brother's just like, you dance for two minutes, maybe. And then we had to stay the whole time, do something that we can go and have fun and watch. And so I went out for the track team and backstories, I went out and the first year, my freshman year, I told my dad I missed tryouts. There are no tryouts for track. It's, it's you pay the fee, you get out there, you go and you run. And so when we came to sophomore year and we were set up for classes, they said, my dad said, okay, well, when are tryouts? I want to make sure if we should miss something. They said, there are no tryouts. So you can start mid-year, last meet of the year. And so that was kind of like my entry to track my sophomore year of high school. And it was through years of mom and dad and siblings kind of pushing me into they knew I was fast I just did not want to do a sport that was pretty much everyone else's like punishment like if you're late for class that class I should say late for a meet or practice you run like in softball soccer everything and so here it was them telling me this is going to be your sport is just (laughs) running it just didn't sound fun (laughs) (laughs) well it turned out to be really great for you as you're a two-time All-American award winner as the hurdler. Yeah, I know. It ended up being a blessing in disguise. I'm thankful that they gave me that push. I think that's like everything in life is there's always someone that sees the potential in you that you just don't see in yourself. Mm-hmm. And I'm thankful that I had some people around me that saw that. So kind of pushed me to track. And then once I got on the track, they pushed me over to the hurdles and they said, well, you have this background in dance and with dance, you've got to be flexible. You've got to be coordinated. And I was a tap dancer. So you've got fast feet that all translate over to the hurdles. I think hurdling would be like your event. And same thing. I just was like, no, I don't think I could be a hurdler. I was pretty much scared of hurdling. I mean, who wants to jump over something full speed? Like explain this event to my, to me. He's like, yeah, you run full speed and then you jump. 
And then you take three steps in between. You go over next one. I'm like, I just want to run from A to B. Like nothing in my way sounds fun. But yeah, it all came together. Like I ended up having a really good high school career. I went on the state and I got an offer from the University of Washington. So that took me to Seattle. And I was so excited to be part of like at that time, the Pac-10. Had a great coach that kind of knew like, she's a beginner. So going into college, I think I had coaches that when they reached out to me, they knew that I'd only been running track for about two years. And so when I was going to really peak was going to be later in my college season or college career, whereas some of my competitors and um, teammates had been running since they were 10. So by the time they got to college, they'd already kind of met their peak and technique was down, speed was down. And so for me, I was, it was more of a work in progress. And so I needed a team and a coach that was willing to like put that work into me. So a lot of skills, a lot of technical drills I had to do, but it came together and got, became an All-American in my fifth season. So as a super senior. Wow. That's incredible. Congratulations. Thank you. Felicia, how did you mentally prepare yourself for the big meets? Oh, wow. I think that, that took me some time to find a routine. I definitely got a lot of anxiety before my meets. And I think for me, always meant that I was like truly passionate about what I was doing is when I would get those nerves and those nerves kind of like drove me to like that adrenaline rush. But I started to create a routine. So mentally, like I would have to the night before eat something that I knew was going to really digest well. I had a few like quotes or, um, people I would talk to beforehand and then going into the meet that morning, same thing. I had a breakfast I would eat. And then the day of when I got to the track, I'd had certain drills. I always had to do in a certain order and I had a certain amount of time that I had to allocate to my warmup. So I felt ready. So like the mental part was also part of my physical aspect. So I had to get fully warmed up and I would mentally check out if I didn't leave myself enough time. So if I tell myself it's going to take me 45 minutes to warm up and for some reason I only have 30, like I've mentally just like already like, oh, stress myself out. So I had to start to hit those checklists of things that I knew would mentally kind of tap me back in. And then before my race, when I would walk out into the track, I just kind of took three deep breaths, walked out there and made sure I was having fun. I would smile before I got on the blocks. I would look down my lane, see the hurdles and start to envision the race. So okay, first hurdle attack. And I just started to walk through and talk to myself in my head of how the race is going to look. So I felt confident when I was in that moment. And so those were some of like my mental aspects of preparing for big meets. Do you think your coach at the University of Washington had influence on you uh, for, the, for those big meets? He did. He did. He was, I think you find coaches that are, some are quiet, and they're big at practice and very technical and some are very like uh, talkative and motivational and inspirational. And that was him. So my first coach, he was very inspirational and he was always about kind of giving you those pep talks. And he, it didn't matter what meet it was, he would pull me aside and, and you have certain athletes that kind of just want to be kept to themselves. And he's, no, this is my philosophy. He pulled me to the side, he gave my ear look at me in my face and just gave me those words of encouragement. And after race, he was right there. If it was good, it was bad. He, there was no space. I walk off that finish line. I walked to get my spikes and there he was uh, looking at my face and saying, all right, this is what I got to work on. I'm like, Oh wow. <laughs> so he, he was great. He was what I needed. I think being a young hurdler and not 
really used to the big meat. So you might find some individuals in the high school setting that go to big meets and because they've been competing for so long that once I got to college, it was just all such a shock for me. Uh, the training routine, the lifting weights, being a student, and then also traveling. And so the level of intensity just raised so much that I, I needed that attention. I needed someone to walk me through things. And so he was a big uh, motivator for me when it came to getting me mentally checked in and helping me prepare for my needs. And how did that change when you graduated college and started running for Brooks? Oh, wow. I had to become my own uh, cheerleader. <laughs> you know, like I had a great coach. And at that time, my coach was also, so I had a coach my first three years of college, and then he left and went somewhere else. And then I had a new coach come in. So I had two coaches in college. And my, my last coach, Koshin, he was also coaching at University of Washington, and then coaching me as a pro athlete. And so that balance of, you know, I'm going to meets where there's collegiate athletes, professional athletes, and he's got a lot of people he's got to handle. So there would be also meets that he couldn't come to. So he couldn't see how I did. He couldn't be there to talk to me beforehand. So I had to kind of adjust into I'm, I am my team. And I think that was a, a hard time for me that first year, that first year transition that you don't realize how, how thankful it is and how blessed you are to have those resources when you're at a college as far as your trainer, your coach, your teammates. You know, when you go pro and I was writing for Brooks, I didn't have a teammate. You know, that I was traveling to all these meets with. Like I would meet people as I traveled, but there wasn't a lot of people that I went to the meet with. So you've got to find a training partner. And I found that, and her name was Christy Gordon. We trained together my second year of competition. Um, and we went to meets together, but same thing. It's like, it was just the two of us. So my team of one went to team of two, but yeah, you, you've got to be that person. And once you come off a, a race, tell yourself, okay, you can do this. And these are things you got to work on and you have to be so proactive. And that's why I feel like going pro is you have to be doing it for yourself. You have to be passionate about the event you're doing and the sport you're doing because it's grinding and it's, it's very relentless. So how do you keep up that motivation? Yeah, that, that was a tough one for me. You know, I, I had to sometimes have, find that balance. And when I got back from a track meet, kind of have some time for me because it became all that I did you know I'd wake up and I'd have a workout and then I'd go work and then I'd go lift weights and then I had to make sure what I was eating and then I had practice and so I had to have some days where I just didn't talk track you know I come home and maybe I have other friends that aren't running track and I I just we go have dinner and we talk about everything else but the track world and then also remembering like why I was doing it I always wanted to go to the Olympic trials and I had big goals. So I had a, a notebook where I just kept like notes in as far as my training journal, I would call it. So how I felt that day and what my goal was for that day and just creating small tasks for the week or for the day to kind of be those drivers for me moving forward. And then also when I went back and read it, reminded me of why I was doing it. And so once I, I retired from track, it was kind of a point where I was, I was ready. I was ready to kind of move on and I had given it so much of my life, but it also had taken so much of my day that I felt like there was more to life than just running and it was time for me to do that. 
What was the point that you decided to retire from track? When I did not make the Olympic trials. So being a hurdler in the United States is like one of the top events, premier events. We always have, I think we've meddled in the 100 meter hurdles in the Olympics the last 20 years. And the previous Olympics, we've, we got first through third. So gold, silver, and bronze. So it's competitive. So usually if you make the Olympic trials, you're top of the world. And I didn't make it. You know, I, I, all I wanted to do was just get in there. And so they take top 34. And I believe I was a 36 fastest athlete that, that year in 2012. And it kind of, it, it hurt. It was like, wow. Okay, so now I have four more years until the next Olympic trials. And there's great meets in between. But I wasn't making a lot of money. You know, I had a great sponsorship and they were paying for travel and they were paying for um, gear and things of that nature, but I was still working. And so unless you are the top in the world, you're not getting paid this amazing salary. You know, I didn't have health benefits. Um, there was a lot of things I had to sit down and like create a pros and cons list of things in life I didn't have. And becoming a student athlete, you, I was realizing I wasn't using any of the student aspect of my career. So I when graduated in poli sci for university of washington and i had some great jobs along the way and i didn't have enough time to put in the energy and effort to have a great career because i was so focused on track and at some point i knew i was going to pick one or the other and so yeah not making the trials was like a, a moment where i just decided all right do you want to do this for another four years to have this goal that you really wanted or is it time to kind of give it up? And so it just felt natural for me. You know, I didn't have any regrets. And then that's what I really wanted was to leave on my own when I was ready. And so I did, left injury free. I left feeling like, wow, I'm able to say I was a pro athlete. I'm able to say that I gave it my all to make it to this big meet on the big stage. And it just didn't work out. And, and now it's trying to transition to something else. And now I'm able to take what I've learned from being a pro athlete and a collegiate athlete and give it to my athletes that I train now. And so I feel like take that knowledge and transfer it to others. That's a great attitude to have coming off of that kind of career. Before we get into your company, I do want to go back to what your experience was like as a student athlete and an athlete at the elite level. Ooh, it was a reality check. It was humbling. <laughs> <laughs> you come out of high school and in California too, like it's just known for being really competitive. So I came out of high school ranked fourth in the state. And I believe I was like top 10 in the country for seniors in the 300 meter hurdles that year. And so going to university of Washington, I thought it was like, I thought I was that girl and you get to college and you realize, Oh, wow. You guys recruited other hurdlers too. I'm not the only one. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's, sophomores and juniors and seniors that have been competing for the last three, four years and training. And then they're faster than you too. And you're like, Whoa, I've got some work to do. So it was reality check. You know, you go from being the best and to, to not being the best. <laughs> and so mentally I had to kind of change gears and the workouts were hard. Balancing student, being a student and athlete was very hard at first, um, not being at home. So I'm from California and I moved to the to Seattle. So I'm a, a plane right away from my family and my friends. And the closest family I had up here was in Portland. So that was also hard is trying to make friends and 
and have someone to hang out with and then also trying to be an athlete and balancing all those worlds. But yeah, I would say I got a good slice of humble pie when I got to college. And then same thing, you transfer over to the next stage to pro-life, same thing. It's, whoa, now I'm dealing with these women who are pros. Like, at least in college, most of them are between 18 and 22. The moment you get into pros, they're 22 all the way to 30 plus. Um, With the 100-meter hurdles, what you'll notice is that, and and actually just I think in women in, in sprints, they peak at that 28:30. It's something about a woman's body and really understanding your strength and lifting and putting certain muscle and mass on. That a lot of the top hurdlers were in their like they were 29 to 32, and there were some that were 34 and still like top in the world. So here I am at 22, like wow, I've got a long time to go. <laughs> And having like patience to be there. And I, I did not have that at that time. But so, yeah, I, it was a transition uh, definitely for both stages from high school to college and then from college to pro. And you definitely have to like find that group, that support group to lean on in both of those stages and find the, the balance in it all. So I think I was, it was great to have um, some good friends and, in a community within athletics at University of Washington to lean on. They had a sports psychologist to lean on as well. Talk through about the pressures because when you get to college, it, it becomes the fun kind of gets removed from it before you're running for yourself. Then you get to college and you get this track scholarship or maybe you don't, but you get a percentage and they, it becomes a business transaction. So now you are expected to run at a certain level. And I, I had a hard time my freshman year because I actually got slower. I just migrated some weight. I, did, I hadn't lift before. There was a lot that I was trying to adjust with and my body and my mind just wasn't taking it in as fast as I wanted it to. And so I didn't have a great season. And there was a young lady who was a walk-on and she was running faster than me. And I was getting paid, not paid, I shouldn't say, but I was on a scholarship to be there. And that hit me hard. Like I had an end of the year conversation of like, we expect this and this from you. And that's what happens when you get a nice scholarship to be here. So you've got to check in and you've got to figure out a way to get back to this level of the potential we see in you. It needs to meet our expectations. You don't hear that in high school. No one says, hey, that bus money you paid to be here, you better be running this fast you don't get those kind of talks. You just get to go out there and have fun. If you have a slow meet, it's on you. If you run fast, it's great. So that pressure was hard. And then also, you know, you have to balance your, your grades and your school. And so having a tutor, I think my days looked like I would wake up, we had two a days. So we'd go in in the morning and we would do drills and lift. I go to class, I come back, I would do our sprint workout. Then I would go to my tutor for an hour and a half. And then I would go to the um, cafeteria and eat dinner. And then I'd have one more tutor right after that. And then I'd go to bed and come back and do it all over again. And it was a lot. And then trying to have fun somewhere in there too. Our track meets were during the weekend. So all of my friends who were just students were enjoying being in college, you know, I had to go to sleep early on a Friday because I had a track meet on a Saturday and then 
Sundays when I got to have fun, my Sunday fun day, but everyone else was studying for Monday. And so I just felt like I was never on like that fun cycle of what everyone else was doing. And so trying to having that fear of missing out definitely hit me hard in college. <laughs> That's a lot to put on a teenager. It is. It really is. And I, I feel like now they have a lot more resources to support these students, but it definitely takes a village. You know, when you're 18, 19 and having those kind of pressures put on you and expectations put on you and some kids just aren't used to it. And so you find them wanting to maybe transfer or go back, be closer to home and having to deal with that. But I feel like now they've got a handful of sports psychologists on, on hand that work with each sport. And so it's, it's almost like integrated into the program where you have someone to talk to that is not your coach. Cause that's the hard part. You know, you have an issue with your coach about something, but you don't want to go talk to them about them. Cause maybe if you're basketball, you might think you might get less playing time. So you want that kind of like neutral sounding board to go to. And so they're definitely trying to prepare the students to communicate that and really share how they're feeling when it comes to just those stresses of everyday life. We also have, uh, we had a mentor system as well. So as I got older, I became kind of like a big sister to not just ladies in my sport, but in other sports that were coming in because you you just went through that. You knew how it is to move away from home as the 18 year old and move to a different state or just even move an hour away and then have to have these expectations put on you. So I think that these 18 year olds are, they're dealing with a lot, especially in this new world of like social media and things of that nature. I think Facebook was just hitting home. Like when I out there, when I got there, so like feeling like the need to post everything that everything is great is no longer is now bigger than it was before. Now everyone wants to post on Instagram kind of like their everyday life and that they're successful and it's not always that way. That's so true. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So let's kind of pivot and talk about you as a coach. Now you own a company called Philippe performance. When and why did you start that company? So as I transitioned out of being an athlete I went into the real world <laughs> when I got a nine to five and I got into like alumni relations and alumni relations and development work. And I loved it, but I missed my athletes. I missed being in that sports world. And so while I was training, I was a, a volunteer coach at the university of Washington and I enjoyed it, but I didn't want to at that time do it full time for a college. So I started coaching at the high school level when I lived in Spokane and it was so um, satisfying. I mean, it just was great feeling to give back and to get to know my athletes. And I turn into, I feel like not just a coach, but like a role model as well for these young ladies. And so I wanted to give my knowledge and expertise back into the community. And so I felt like I had so much that I had learned over the years and that there was a need for that in our community. But also I just didn't see a lot of women out there that were coaching and women of color that are coaching. And I just think that representation is so important for these young athletes to see someone that looks like them out there. And when I was an athlete, a lot of my coaches, all my coaches were men, all my sprint coaches were men. And I just thought how that would have shifted me if I also had someone to share like my personal life with that I was going through with a coach as well. And so I started fully back in 
I would say 2016 was when I like slowly started to train a little bit more. And then when I moved to Seattle, I, I realized that there was a need for speed training outside of track. So I was so focused on just coaching track and build that I took a step back and realized that there's soccer, softball, football, lacrosse, uh, it goes on and on of different sports that you're running, but there's not really a big focus in your workout on how to be fast and how to run properly. And so I started with softball and I realized that a lot of the coaches were doing a great job of coaching them how to hit and how to ground a ball and going through some of the plays, but they weren't really getting the most out of them when it came to sprinting. So I saw that there was a, a need for it. And I kind of just kind of found my way gradually going into that, that side of training and speed and agility. And so I don't really coach any track athletes. So it's so, it's so funny that that's like my background that's gotten me to this point, but now I'm, I'm able to work with the masses and, and coach a lot of these sports that I've never played before, but at the end of the day, running is running. And I know how to teach someone how to run fast and then incorporate it into their sport. So what kind of impact do you see happening with the athletes that you're coaching? Yeah, I, I see a combination of, well, they're getting faster, but they're being, becoming more confident. You know, I, I have athletes come to me and say, I'm slow. Someone labeled them at a younger age or whatever point in their life as the slow one. Oh, that's so-and-so. They can hit, but man, they're slow running the bases. Or that, slow, that so-and-so can catch the ball great, but once they get going, they just take the forever to get going. And so athletes were coming to me a little bit defeated already of being labeled the slow athlete. And so I love a challenge. And I, people start to realize that running is very technical. And a lot of it is fixing up your form to get you to run more efficiently and effectively in a one direction first. And that's what we focus on. Let's focus on getting those arms swinging because I work with athletes from ages 10 to 18 plus, And a lot of it, sometimes, you know, their sport, they're, they're crossing their arms in front of them, or they're just swimming out there. Arms are all out, all over the place. And so like bringing it all together. So that's kind of like the impact I feel like I've seen and made is like building their confidence. It's really interesting when someone feels like they're fast, they feel like they can attack anything. You know, when you're fast at just running, it becomes faster at, for instance, like if you're it's baseball or softball, getting to the ball, even getting to a ground ball or taking the ball from your glove and throwing, like everything moves a little bit faster when we build those explosive and fast switch muscles in your body. Well, so that begs the question, what does it mean to run or to sprint well and fast? Yeah, to run and sprint well and fast, I would say it goes to the form and being smooth. I mean, can we make sure you don't have an excessive amount of movement going right and left? It should be going forward unless you're going to right and left. But yeah, so it's all about being technically sound, like the knee drive. Are we landing on the balls of our feet rather than collapsing and laying on our heels? Are we up tall? What's our posture look like? So there's so many different aspects to running fast versus well. So running well to me is, does there... Is their posture right? Or they look technically sound. Running fast is, I'm just going to get from A to B as quick as possible. But how well do I look doing it? And so I think that we have to understand that, you know, running smart is what it's all about. 
So trying to really eliminate as much energy that we're putting into it. So I can have someone that can run just as fast as someone else. And the person who doesn't have the best form at the end is, is so tired. And person B, whose form is smooth, you keep up with the same person, their energy level, their stamina is there. They're like, oh, okay, that wasn't bad because I didn't just exude, I didn't just exert all this extra energy, all this extra movement I did going right to left and, you know, my knees are going in the right direction and things of that nature. So definitely fast versus well is all out energy, not so much great form, but as well as smooth running mechanics. Wow, I had no idea. <laughs> yeah. How, so running and sprinting feels so primal when you're doing it. You are looking to get from point A to point B as quickly as possible. Where do you begin to make changes? Yeah, so I like to just, I watch an athlete run and I, I start from the feet up because there's so many different aspects to like technique that they can work on. And so I definitely like to see where they're landing on their feet. So ground contact is really important because what you're trying to do is like get down and up as fast as possible. So if you are not staying on the balls of your feet and your, your heels are collapsing, that means it's taking you a little bit of time to bring that heel back up to run. And so that's where I start. And then I'll move up to the knee. Is their knee drive high? Is it really low? When we look at their, their stride, so they're like their cycle and their gaze. So are they bring the knee up, lay on the, on the balls of our feet and kind of bring it back up. And then we move up to like their posture. So how does, is there, are their shoulders rolled back? Are they hunched over? How are their arms look? Are their arms going from ear to elbow? Are they not getting enough swing in it? Or if they, are they getting too much? Are they bringing those arms way behind them and having to pump them way back in front of them again. So that's why I talk about like really working on minimal movement. So trying to take away all this extra movement people are doing, or sometimes they're not doing enough because your arms go with your feet. So if your arms are pumping fast, your feet will go with them. So if we're not getting enough of a swing in our arms, that means we're not gonna get enough drive in our knees. And then I move up to the head. So what's the head doing? Is the chin tucked down? Then, no, you don't want that. Is the chin so far up high that their eyes are looking at the sky? You don't want that. Are there, is their face like going right and left? We don't want that. So like I said, back to the movement, looking at where our eyes are, they should be in front of us. We should be looking in front of us unless we're like in our drive phase. But yeah, so that's, it's a lot, but that's kind of where I start. I kind of just break down each part of uh, their posture and, and their angles and running. And then we do drills that focus on each one. And depending on like their age and what level they are, um, I try not to overwhelm them. So we can spend weeks on focusing on one portion of their running mechanics. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned a drive phase. Are there different phases of sprinting and, and what are they? Yeah, yeah. So your drive phase is like, the acceleration, it's like your first step. So there's, there's the start. The start is the first step you drive out. The drive phase is everything after that first step. So that means like our body is at an angle. Our eyes are down towards the ground. And we're a big, powerful arm swing. We're pumping, pumping, pumping. And then 
after about 10 yards, 10 meters, you gradually come up where we're up tall. And then we're in that top end speed. And that's about as fast as we're going to be able to go. And the goal is how, for how long can we maintain that? So not many sports ever get up to that top end speed. So with track, I, I did a lot on the top end speed. Cause if you're running the hundred, then, you know, your, your drive or your, your starts the first like five meters and then your drive phases the next 10 or 15. And then after that you're in top end speed. And can we maintain that before you start to slow down? Whereas in, in soccer or um, lacrosse or some sort, you're mainly in drive phase because it's stop and go. You're not really ever running 100 meters. And for softball, you know, for doing the bases, you know, we're running bases. It, it, you're going to run from one base to the next. You might have to slide. So there is a portion of deceleration in there. So for, yeah, for most of my sports that I do, we focus on just that drive phase, staying low, building that momentum, bringing those knees up, and quick ground contact, getting our feet down up as fast as possible. It sounds like such small changes can make such a big impact. Yeah, they can. And that's why I try to share with my athletes that you know, when they come in on the slow one, it's like, oh, there's, there's a lot of little things that we could do that make such a big impact that you wouldn't even realize. And that we can, over a week or two, we can make some small little technical changes and you'll see and feel the difference the next week or two at your game or whatever it might be. In your personal training, what was one, what was one small tweak that you made to your running style that had a huge impact? Oh, my arms. Oh, man. I did not like pump my arms. I have this one arm, my left arm. For some reason, it just doesn't, it doesn't swing. Like it will just stay there and it will not come back to my hips and my right arm will just be pumping and working like overtime. And my coach was just like, oh, pump that left arm. I can just hear him now. And so he made this contraption where like it can, it would be around my ham and, and attached to like my shoulder so it would drive my hand back and he would make me run with it until I just got too annoyed with it. <laughs> um, <laughs> so that's why I like such a big one on the arm swing because I know the difference it can make. So yes, the arm swing. And for me, it was that left arm not going back far enough. It just, it just chilled there. It was like, I'm good. I don't want to do any work. <laughs> <laughs> so you clearly have so much knowledge about sprinting. Is this from your experience or do you have any recommendations for people who are looking for resources? Uh, can you point them in a direction of where to go? Yeah. So for me, it was more experience and just having some great coaches along the way. I definitely went and got the USA track and field certification. So I'm level one right now. Um, they've got a great book out that really takes you through all of the different phases and some of the great technique work that you can do to, to make yourself faster. So I truly believe that if you can get faster linearly, so just going in a straight line, then you can start to move faster going right to left and start adding that different change of direction and different planes. So um, the USA track and flow website has some great resources and information um, for athletes that are in different sports. I mean, I would say go out for track. You know, it, track is a great sport just to help you with just those technical drills, even if you don't feel like 
you're going to be, it's going to be your main sport. It's a great sport just to be supplement all the other sports you do. And then I would say that there's some great uh, websites out there off the top of my head. I don't know them, but there's some websites out there that have some good information when it comes to articles on um, speed and just speed and agility as well. Okay. Or you can also check out my Instagram. Yeah. Oh <laughs> I, yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, I try to keep it pretty educational. I think there's a lot of different pages out there, but for most of the posts I make, I, I do, um, the benefits of it, the focus of it, and those cues for if it's a parent trying to take their, their son or daughter through the drill, or if it's a coach with their athletes, so they can have some educational piece. I don't like to just post a video and then you're looking at it being like, oh, okay, I'm gonna go try this, but you don't know why you're doing it and what to work on within it. So moving from the track to the weight room, what can athletes do to improve their speed and strength there? Yeah, so the weight room is, it's all about explosion, I would say, just building that power. So what I like to have my athletes do is anywhere from like a box jump, you can do weighted box jumps, just regular box jumps with dumbbells or nothing at all, but working on the explosion right there. And also it helps with that extension. So with sprinting, that first step is from the ankle to the hip, it's like extending your body out. So full extension, any drills that give you full extension. Um, I love the snatch because it's really working on from lower body extremities all the way up to the top. So that pull and bring the hips through and then dropping underneath it. It's a great explosion drill. Like, yeah, box jumps, squats, anything to, to really build power in your legs is going to translate over when you're sprinting. I would love to keep talking about sprint mechanics, but <laughs> I think we have to move on. Yeah. Um, so you post a lot of quotes on your Instagram page. Do you have a favorite? Ooh. I would say um, one of my favorites is never let your fear decide your fate. And I, I really focus on this idea that I would have never ran track or tried the hurdles because I was so fearful of it. And I really want to attack my fears now. And so when there's something that you're, you're scared of or something that just pulls you outside of your comfort zone, that's usually where you belong. You know, if you're a little scared of, about it, then it's probably the benefits of it. It's going to be just even more. It's going to just double in, in the benefits and joy that you have when you accomplish that goal. So definitely don't let like fear keep you away from anything. Definitely move towards the fear, run towards your fear. So you just gave a talk on fear at the Women's Strength Summit hosted by Fear Her Fight, a company founded by Maria Rodriguez. Uh, yeah. Can you talk about the event, how you got involved, and then also what you talked about? Yeah, so I got involved. Um, I met Maria at Alice and Tenney's event, um, Seattle Women Ignited, back in February, and Maria spoke about Fear Her Fight Athletics, which is just an awesome stance of powerlifting and it's talking about women really kind of owning their space and owning who they are in this very like male dominated sport and so I met her her energy and passion for like her purpose through mission through fear her fight was great and I wanted to meet her more so we connected and she shared this event that was the first ever so first ever women's strength summit it was held in Tacoma and it was a combination of just like speakers and 
we did a little Zumba. There was a wad in there. There was a, a deadlifting competition at the end. So it was a nice combination. I mean, everyone came in there with like their spandex and lifting shoes and they were just ready to work out, but also ready to receive some like powerful words of women in through their stories. So we talked about how we found our strength. And mine's kind of back to my quote about the fear, um, letting fear, not fear failure, not like def- defeat me. So I was always scared of trying something that I didn't know I'd be good at. So I like to do things that like, oh, I'll be good at that. But something that I didn't know if I'd exceed at it, I, was, I just kind of made me take a step back. And so now through that, I've kind of found that I, I like a challenge. And so, like I said, like running the hurdles, like I didn't want to fall. I didn't want to fail. And then I ended up doing an event where that's exactly what you can do. You can hit a hurdle and fall on your face. And so I kind of elaborated in this idea that what always drives me forward is if I'm passionate, if I'm patient, and if I'm resilient. So I found the passion that I had for hurdles. But then through that, I had to become patient. And I didn't, when I started in college, I, I had a really rough year my freshman year. I came back my sophomore year. I broke my foot. <laughs> so then I had to start all over and kind of learn how to run again and do rehab. And so there goes like my resilience. Then I came back my uh, junior and senior year and I ran the same time two years straight. I never got faster. Always ran like 1350. That's, I could never get past that time. And then my fifth year, it all kind of came together and I ran from 1350 to 1318 in one season. And I became the second fastest athlete in University of Washington, 25th fastest in the country that year and the ninth fastest collegiate athlete. And so this idea that success has not happened overnight, you know, my, that, that is my highlight reel, my last season, but all the work it took was like five or six years building up to that one point. And if I would have gave up at year one, I would have never saw what I was capable of doing. So I was only able to get to that point because I was passionate so much about like my goal of being a hurdler. And then I was patient and resilient through all those obstacles that came in my face and in my way throughout the years. So that was, that was my speech in a nutshell, but it was, it was great. I mean, the women were, there was other women that, that spoke about their own um, trials through sport and, we all left kind of like, wow. I mean, that's what it's all about being around like women, like-minded women and being motivated through their stories and kind of leaving with like that word, those words of encouragement. Of, okay. Now what I thought I couldn't do, I know I can't. It sounds like it was a really powerful event. It was, it was. I'm so thankful that and honored I was able to speak, but just also be there and just listen and, and meet other women. So I'm excited. I think she's going to carry it on. It's going to be a, a second year of it next year. So definitely be on the lookout for, for more from fear her fight and for more from me, hopefully. Yes. Yes. More from you. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So we're going to wrap up soon. Let's get to some of the lightning round questions. Um, What is the most memorable thing you've ever eaten? Oh gosh. You know what? I would tell my mom's peach cobbler. (laughs) (laughs) And it's not even something like very unique. It's just like my favorite thing. There's something about it. Peach cobbler with some ice cream with it. And it's my mom's that just puts me in a certain place. I love it. (laughs) 
I, yeah, I, I think um, memorable could mean anything. So yeah. that's great. What are three people, books, or podcasts that have been influential to you? Three people. Ooh. Um, my dad, for sure. My mom. My husband. Those three, like, are all very unique in their own ways, and they keep me moving in the right direction. And when I feel defeated or when I feel like I need some extra words, one of them always has the right thing to say, whether it's adding a sense of humor to it or adding some like tough love to it. They've got it. Uh, books. Ooh, I love um, Ego is Enemy. And it is such a great book to read. Um, Obstacle is the Way. Same book, same author wrote both of those books. And they've definitely like helped me as I've added like, the mental aspect to what I do. Uh, podcast. I love to listen to uh, ooh, Oprah. <laughs> She's got this uh, super soul Sunday that I enjoy. It's just like, ooh, what about her voice? It just always, it's like, she has different speakers on it that are really inspirational. Um, revisionist history. I like Malcolm Gladwell. He's got these various topics that always speak to me. Um, those are two off the top of my head that I know that I listen to quite a bit. And there's a handful of others. I just can't remember right now. I, I think the Revisionist History podcast is doing some really important work. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Okay. And so last question, if someone came to earth from another planet, what is one thing you'd tell them? To lead with love. Definitely. Especially with what's going on in the world right now to lead with love. Um, definitely have compassion for others and focus on yourself right now. I mean, I think you've got to know who you are and be able to love yourself before you can kind of go out there and love others and build others up. But I think this world needs a lot of love right now and a lot of compassion for others and being able to put perspective on your life and others' lives. So I think if they came here and they looked around like, what is going on right now? But definitely lead with love. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> well, Felicia, thank you so much for being a guest on this podcast. It was truly an honor and pleasure to speak with you. Uh, I feel like I could talk to you for another few hours. I just, I learned a lot from you. So thank you. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. This is my first podcast. So I'm honored and super excited to hear it out, how it goes and, and thankful for the opportunity. And I mean, like you said, like right, talking about sprinting, when I started to talk about it, people were like, well, I didn't realize so much went into it. I'm like, yeah, there's a lot of different like layers to it. But yeah, I could go on when it comes to sprinting and just talking about speed and agility. But thank you for having me. And I'm yeah. so excited for your podcast and to see it flourish. And oh, thank you. On it. I think it's going to be great. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Thanks for tuning in to Muscles to the Masses, the podcast. To support Felicia, check out her website, philippeperformance.com, and find her on VIG at Philippe Performance and at Felicia11. That's 1-1. One, one. If you'd like to support the show, leave us a review on iTunes, tell a friend, or buy a butt bag at musclestothemasses.com.